0: Unlike agape love or philia love, Eros love surrounds us wherever we are. It's in our phones, our media, our commercials, our minds, our bodies, and our hearts. Eros is sensual, passionate love. Like all other loves, it is a gift from God, but we can overemphasize Eros love to error. Romance novels account for 33% of mass market fiction, bringing in $1.4 billion just last year. Porn amounts to 35% of all internet downloads, and 65% of men and 18% of women admit to viewing porn at least once a week. How does Eros Arai harm us, and how can we view it rightly in our lives? This is Christian Curious, and I'm Dr. Haley Gray-Scott. Each week, we tackle some of the hardest, most pressing questions facing Christians in the 21st century. Today, I'm speaking with Andrew Lazo about Eros love. Andrew Lazo is an Episcopal priest and an internationally known speaker and writer specializing on C.S. Lewis and the Eaglings. His book, *Mere Christians, collects more than 50 different accounts of Christians sharing their stories of how Lewis shaped the course of their spiritual journeys. He is married to Dr. Kristen Ditchfield, a prolific author and speaker in her own right, He has a B.A. with honors in English from UC Davis, an M.A. in Modernist British Literature from Rice University, and holds an M.Div. with honors from Virginia Theological Seminary. He also serves as a distinguished lecturer at Northwind Theological Seminary, where he is earning a doctorate on the thought and work of C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. He is also a co-host on the On Pints with Jack podcast, a weekly discussion of the works of C.S. Lewis. Pertinent to this discussion he is also working on a long awaited study of Till We Have Faces. Andrew welcome to Christian Curious.
1: Hey, Lee, it's just great to be with you and uh what a what a joy to spend a few minutes thinking about the most important things in the world.
0: Yeah, and just before we dive into to Eros love, it, you know, as we've spoken before, um I've been a writer since I was 12 and yet Till We Have Faces made me stop writing for um four years
1: because
0: <laughs> <laughs> because i'm like how do you even begin to you know improve upon perfection
1: yeah yeah you know um during the uh during the early 90s i lived in Nashville, tennessee <clears throat> and actually spent some time on the road as the road manager for phil keggie uh, an accomplished christian guitarist who i had grown up loving and um, it was actually Phil who who turned me on to C.S. Lewis while we were on the road together. But he is such a virtuoso that I would see these kind of two reactions after a show and people would walk away going, I just need to throw away my guitar. Um, right. And others would be like, oh, man, I just need to really kind of dig in. I want to get better. I want to get better You know? And yeah, till we have faces, especially for those uh, of your audience that aren't aware, It's Lewis called it far and away my best book, but it was this one great disappointment with the critics. And in some ways, I've been discovering in the last over 15 years of working and writing about it, that this is the culminative work that really kind of redefines what Lewis is all about. And Eros is right at the heart of this story.
0: Yeah. Well, I encourage everyone to read till we have faces. And if you don't understand it, read it until you do. And if you don't understand it, savor the words to within it because there's so much great wisdom packed within it. Okay, so Eros Love. How do we define Eros Love? How do you define it?
1: So um, I'm going to be a student of my master, C.S. Lewis, um, and his landmark work. In fact, the most important work I have read as an adult was uh, Before Loves. This is written in 1960. It was written just before Joy Davidman, Lewis's wife, died. They got married late in life and in it lewis describes the four greek concepts or greek words for love um, and those include storge which is um family love it's patriot love it's love of association right mm-hmm. it's the love that um you don't really choose um it's the reason why you're probably friends on social media with with uh folks from high school who you'll never talk to again um, the fight song the uh, national anthem the kind of family traditions. This is all Storgi love, right? It's not, uh, self-selected. We stumbled into it. We, we didn't, we didn't pick it, but it also is responsible. Lewis calls it affection. It's responsible for 90% of the solid affection in this world, Lewis says. Um, Philia is in some ways opposite to Storgy because you don't pick your family members or your countrymen, but you do pick your friends and all friends right. stand shoulder to shoulder looking at the same thing the same way. Whether it's NASCAR or knitting, um, Lewis or heavy metal, or I don't know, whatever it is, antique cars, a botany, whatever—it's um, an interest that you feel down to your core. And then when you find somebody else who is interested in that same thing with you, you are uh, you know, unavoidably attracted to talk about the thing. You don't really think about the relationship because you're looking at the thing itself. Um, right. It could be guitar solos and '70s Christian music albums, which is what my best friend and I. Uh, spend endless hours talking about. Um, They separate from the crowd just to be polite because they know they're unusual. They know they're nerding out a little bit about this thing, but it's so comforting to find someone else who feels that same way. And if a third person would, were to come along who loves the same thing, they'd be more than welcome. If somebody loves the the same topic, but loves it in the wrong way, you know, if you love NASCAR, but you meet somebody who, who, uh, who follows the driver that you hate the most, they'd still be welcome into that filia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: friendship group it starts with interest and then intimacy develops when you realize that you can trust these friends with the deepest things of your soul and that's how the kind of intimacy or friendship grows up it's not about the relationship initially lewis says it's just about the thing but then if it's that it's a thing that's deep enough to you or you become you become intimate uh is the right word for it uh, agape, of course, is divine love. It's unconditional love. It's decision love. It's choice love. God doesn't love us because we are lovable. He only loves us because he decided to love us. It wasn't because we were so fetching and compelling. Um, and it's the kind of love referred to in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. This is agape or agape. It's unconditional love. We humans get there um, in little spurts, um, but that's not our main our main love. And so that leaves arrows. And Lewis really kind of clearly defines it. If friends are shoulder to shoulder looking at the same thing out of each other, they're not looking at, at each other or the relationship. Lovers are face to face. And what lovers want to go do is go on thinking about the beloved. Friends almost never talk about the relationship until far down the trail. Lovers can't help but talk about the relationship. At all times. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. I hung up first last time. You hung up. You know, you know it's just right. this this focus on the beloved. They also separate from the crowd, but they separate from the crowd because they want privacy. And a third or fourth who enters in would not be welcome at all. And so that's kind of how I begin to understand Eros. In his marvelous chapter, Lewis breaks it down between Eros, he uses Eros, who is the son of Aphrodite in Greek mythology, or Cupid and Venus, same same um, relationship between those gods. Eros, Lewis describes as the romantic falling in love bit of it. Venus is more the sexual part of that, uh, that overall romantic love. And so that's kind of how Lewis breaks it down in his book, and that's pretty much where I start.
0: Okay. Do you think that Eros love is overemphasized in our culture or... <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um, So I'm teaching a class on Monday nights here at my parish on mere Christianity. And we just read that chapter. um, And he uses this very memorable example that you and I were talking about before we started, um, where if you were in a country where people packed into a crowded, darkened room and paid good money to watch a three, you know, a steak be slowly revealed on stage Mm -hmm. to this breathless, panting mass of people, you'd think that there was something wrong with the appetite for food. Right. in that culture. And Lewis says in the same way, the, the, the response, the, the overwhelming response to, as you were saying in your intro and, you know, sexuality is everywhere and it's really overemphasized that that love is inflamed and usually inflamed uh, as Lewis notes by advertisers. Um, when was the last time, I mean, you could see, I was watching a, a commercial for, I think it was some kind of mopping solution, and they were using sex right. to, to, uh, to, to sell that. And so the sexual appetite or instinct has been wildly inflamed in our culture, and often because um, you can make money off of it. Lewis says that somebody who's under the sway of that kind of lust is very susceptible to advertisement. And so I think that there's some of that connection. Um, somebody else is making something off of our overemphasis in our society on sex, and that somebody else might not necessarily be simply human.
0: Okay, so a fair question would be, then what is, what is our problem? I mean, why are, we, why are we so hungry about, why is our sexual appetite so inflamed versus like friendship love, which we hardly ever talk about friends. And when we do, we sexualize it a lot of the time, sure. not always, but a lot of the time.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I was an English lit guy, and um, we talked about the homoerotics of all kinds of same-sex relationships. And almost any time, a a partner, you know, two people of the same sex were alone together and expressing any kind of affection, we backwards read that with our modern critical eyes as being sexualized. I'm not sure why that's what the enemy has chosen to use, Um, but this overemphasis on sex um, is very effective. Right, And right. so the enemy generally is going to use a tool until it stops being effective. And the moment that tool stops being effective, he's going to drop that and try to attack somewhere else. Lewis is actually good on this. In um, uh, It's in the Screwtape Letters, which is a class that I also teach at my parish. Um, he says, in effect, uh, this is a devil, and an older devil, teaching a younger de- devil how to, to damn a human soul. And so the older uncle Screwtape says um, something to the effect of, Great. Uh, Go ahead and let him be chaste, but just make him proud of his chastity, Mm -hmm. right? Because we'll trade, we'll trade sexual purity for pride, which is the real sin. Pride, Lewis says, is the great sin. And it's the thing behind all sins in some ways. Um, It's this focus on me. It's this inner focus on what I want. And our culture, especially our American Western capitalistic culture, and I'm the beneficiary of capitalism. not slagging it, um, slagging it. But our culture is is makes money from this, right? And, um, and you know, within that context, um, it all is fair in advertising. And so there's something about it that seems to be undergirded with a financial component. Who's benefiting from me thinking about sex all day long? Right? Somebody's, Somebody's going to benefit be. from that. It's not my spiritual walk. Right. Not my marriage right? It's not my friendships. You can't commodify and capitalize on friendship all that much. Try to sell that. use that to sell dish detergent, right? And it's not going to work. So the idea of the physical body as commodified is one of the things that's been happening in the last 100 years. And a commodity, as we've learned in our culture, is something that can sell. And if it's going to sell, somebody is going to go to town with that. So I think that's part of what's undergirding some of that.
0: You know, it's almost like a cyclical p- process. I mean, we're, we have that appetite and yet we're also conditioned by it over and over and mm-hmm. over again, because that's what we see on, you know, everywhere. That's what we see everywhere. Mm-hmm. That, that inflaming of that, that one core desire for that particular love. I mean, I have, you know, storgi love for my family, but it may not be the same as Eros love and it is not the same and so i think that there may be some kind of cyclical nature where we're conditioned almost to desire that particular particular type
1: at denver seminary our online on campus and hybrid graduate education programs prepare men and women to engage the needs of the world with the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture. Our mission will equip you for any ministry calling. To learn more about our degree programs, certificate opportunities, and classes, visit denverseminary.edu. That's part of the reason that I think the Four Loves is so helpful, is that it identifies the different loves and what they do. And so one of the things Lewis says in there is what you were in that book. It's what you were just saying. Not all kisses between lovers are lovers kisses. Right. Right. Um, And uh, that would be good for those
0: people who say that Jonathan and David were into a romantic relationship. Right.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. And it's, uh, I think that it's, I think that it's cyclical because it's working. Right. Once that stops working, they're gonna get something else. What the world the great enemies, of course, according to the scriptures, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so um what the world is going to do, what the enemies of of the Christian soul are gonna do is twist, pervert, bend, put out of proportion. So Lewis grabs this idea from Augustine and expresses it well in the screw tape letters and elsewhere. A a bad thing, an evil thing, is a good thing perverted, a right. good thing twisted or out of proportion right sex is a great thing within certain limited biblical parameters sex outside of that becomes monstrous and all the more monstrous in our society um you see this idea of the mother's love being the greatest love in the world and i have not ever been a mother nor will i ever be and i'm not disparaging mothers but you see mother love inflamed and mother love exalted and Part of that is commodity as well. You know, there's something going on with that. And I feel so, uh, so deeply for those folks who come to our Mother's Day services and the mothers get flowers. Well, what about the ones who are not mothers? Right. Or the mothers who have lost their children or the mothers who are estranged or the single folks. But there's this whole industry. I waited tables for 10 years and Mother's Day is the best, you know, is the the most, is the busiest day in the world. And so the enemy is going to try to twist all, all of the love until they help us to be self-centered instead of other-centered, until it prevents us from loving God and loving neighbor. That's always the goal, right?
0: I'm thinking of, right now, I'm thinking of Pam and the great divorce.
1: Yeah, yes. And um, I can't believe in a God that would keep a mother from her child, but Lewis is so steady-headed that he helps us to stop and consider what's happening. Pam would rather take Michael, who was illegitimate, by the way, And that comes out in The Great Divorce. She would rather drag her son to hell to be with her than have him remain by himself in heaven. And her brother, who comes to to kind of encourage her, wants Pam to stay and to learn how to get over herself enough so that she would actually love Michael. Mother's love is not, in Pam's case, it's not mother's love. It's self-love, as with every other example in the great divorce and the fundamental question is will i increase myself or will i decrease like saint john the baptist said and let him de- increase. and that's what's going on with that so those loves are our are, are fair game
0: yeah and that's probably i'd love for you to to touch on why you think that in particular we in our culture you know i as i speak a lot with young adults we tend to sexualize philia love.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people sexualize philia love because they don't have it and they don't understand it. And it's very rare in our culture to find a good friend. And what I mean by friend is not acquaintance, not somebody I happen to go to school with. I mean, I probably have 100, you know, 100 or so friends on my Facebook um, who I knew in high school, and I converse with three of them. Right. Right. Those three, though, we have something in common other than the four years that we spent at San Juan High School in Citrus Heights, California. Right. We have something in common. Our worldview is in common. We like the same music. We like the same books, that sorts of that sort of thing. And so I think that that philia gets disparaged and gets sexualized because people don't have it or really understand it. If you've had a really good lifelong friend, I just had my ordination three weeks ago, and my best friend was here in my office. And um Shesterton talks about the slow maturing of old jokes, right? This kind of intimacy that develops over the years. Starts with interest, but then we share each other's lives. And I prayed him through his father's death, and I prayed him through his mother's death, and he prayed me through the death of both of my parents. You know, and so it I think primarily it's sexualized because that sexuality monster is going to continue working until we, you know, until we tell it to stop. And it's sexualized because people don't really experience friendship because fundamentally friendship is about, well, the fundamental definition of love for Lewis comes in a talk in 1958 that becomes the basis of the book, The Four Loves. And he defines love as where we go out of ourselves towards the other. Those are two crucial components. The first thing I have to do when I love even if it's arrows or philia or sword, I go out of myself. Not me, but what are you interested in? Right. I say no to me, and then I say yes to you. Right? You tell me what this is going on. Tell me about yourself. Right. When I'm more interested in the well-being of someone else, that's when I'm loving. And that's what happens with Philia is you so care about something else, you forget about yourselves. Right, you get lost in that thing, and that move away from self towards anything is the fundamental good move towards any kind of conversion and any kind of spirituality. Because when it comes to God, we have to fall on our faces and move towards Him, and abandon ourselves, and that's what's missing, I think, in our culture.
0: You know, I I really do agree with you, and I'm curious. You know, as we wrap up, how, you know, Eros love. I do believe there is an element of the concept in greek literature of of almost of taking of um it's receiving it's got that element Mm -hmm. of thought to it so if we are to think of eros how can we think of eros appropriately i guess that would be my question um to reduce ourselves decrease ourselves and increase um, allow christ to increase even in our eros love how can we do that
1: well, and and uh, I hope this doesn't sound strange for an Episcopalian uh, to say, it's all in the scripture, right? It starts in the scripture. And so um, the great metaphor that God uses in the holy scriptures for his relationship with us is a bride and a bridegroom, right? He is the bridegroom and we are the bride. Eros, I'm I'm not disparaging Eros, it's the most compelling of the loves, and I think that's part of why it goes a little crazy in our culture, it's the most powerful. But it's also the metaphor that God chose to use to to talk about the very heights of natural love. And in the scripture, it tells us very clearly what we can do. Wives, uh, husbands and wives, and everybody submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so the best thing that i as a husband can do is submit to my wife and and the best thing that i as a servant of, of christ can do is to submit to uh, other people's agendas right it's it's part of what what saint paul says and then my charge as a husband is to love my wife as christ loved the church and gave himself for him that's a high high calling right that's that's difficult to do and it takes every bit of arrows that i have um for my wife And every bit of the agape that I can muster that I'll allow God to give me in order to grow. And so part of what we're, our job as Christians in the world is uh, part of what our our job to do consists in correcting the disproportion, right? Right. And so changing what we see, teaching our children, showing people what the proper balance of arrows looks like. Lewis says, quoting Denis de Rougemont in The Four Loves, the love, the love, the the three natural loves, philia storge, and Eros. Love ceases to be a demon when it ceases to be a god. So when I have over-exalted any of the loves, especially Eros, it will turn demonic. It'll get twisted. Uh, Lewis wrote a fantastic essay that I recommend to you and to your readers. It's called First and Second Things. And fundamentally, it's about priority. If I prioritize Eros to the cost of charity, I am going to get Eros, but it's going to be demonic. It's going to be out of proportion. If what I'm seeking is other people's goods, all of the other loves will take their natural place, their proper place. And part of the struggle of the Christian life is to balance those priorities um, and to temper them all with the love of Christ, which should prevail in all of our hearts and all our actions.
0: You know, the word that I've often like heard whispered in my soul so much over and over and over again, as I do my research, as I do my reading is um, some something that we just don't think about, but you know, it's temperance,
1: mm-hmm.
0: temperance in all things, you know. Yep. And right. I actually, I actually used to think it was a, it was God's cosmic, um, divine imperative on my life that I mm-hmm. be temperate because I am not a temperate person by nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I am like the whole fourteen mount fourteen or or nothing. You know, it's the whole mm-hmm. thing or nothing, and. You know, it's ironic that my maiden name is Gray, and my now my mm. middle name is Gray. It's not Black. That was my mother's maiden name, but um, mm. not Black, not White, Gray. The very center, the balance, the temperance, and it's almost in. I'm I'm, I'm surprised that temperance is not spoken more of as as a need <laughs> in our culture. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: I, I know exactly what you mean. And um the uh, for for further discussion of this, I recommend highly Lewis's uh chapter on the four cardinal vir- the cardinal virtues in your mm-hmm. Christianity. And that's one of the cardinal virtues. And temperance doesn't mean I'm a teetotaler. Temperance means I you I have the right amount, but no less or no more. Right. Um and so it's appropriateness, it's fitness, it's first and second things. Um part of it too is Lewis's great model for developing virtue. He says, in effect, that an action repeated will become a habit and a habit repeated will become a virtue. And so I have to start by being, at committing a temperate act and then repeating that temperate act until I get in the habit, habit of temperance, of appropriateness, right? Right. Until it becomes a character of my own soul. Where I am going to respond in an appropriate way because by action and action repeated and repeated until it becomes habit, it sinks into our soul, right? Um, that's how you develop a virtue like courage or temperance or all the rest. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, that's the same way we develop a vice. And so what you've seen, like with the intemperate uh, approach to Eros in our culture, is actions, bad actions repeated until they become habitual and habits repeated until they have become advice. And they've sunk into our national soul, our cultural soul, our societal soul. They've sunk into our personal souls and have become characteristic of it. But the good news is undoing advice happens in that same way. Today, I'm going to make a good choice, and I'm going to try and make that a habit tomorrow and continue to make those good choices. And so I think that there's a lot of hope out there. And I think Lewis's discussion of love and his discussion of the development of appropriate virtue is lifeblood to us today.
0: Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for your wisdom. I mean, it's amazing. The trove of wisdom you have is incredible. It really is. (laughs)
1: Well, I just I'm I'm stealing lock, stock and barrel. I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a interloper in the treasure trove that is the library that was Lewis's mind and his life. And I owe him as great a debt as I can owe any man. And that's part of why I went into the ministry. I mean I want to I want to convey the uh, the great goodness and the riches in my own life um that, that have been born and cultivated and born by by following Lewis's great example. So
0: Well, thank you thank so you. much for being yeah. with us on Christian Curious.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our time together.
0: And if people want to find out more about you, where can they find your work?
1: So, um, uh, myth is my website. And, um, a lot of my work, I, 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 spend a few hours every week working with the pints with Jack podcast and we have done the four loves we've done till we have faces. That was my first season uh, as a guest. And then I became a guest host. Um, so you can find Pints with Jack anywhere. Podcasts are pints with com. Um, and yeah, and then I've, we broadcast the, uh, my, my screw tape letters class is a Sunday night class from five to six Eastern. And that's at the churchofthemessiah.com. Mm-hmm. And it's on our YouTube page. So churchofthemessiah.com is where some of that stuff is. And if your, if your, um, listeners are going to read to have faces, a quick search on my name and that book, and you'll find a lecture at the Wade Center. You'll find a talk I did at the Anselm Society. Um, something I did at Houston Christian University and so there's some helps out there and there's about an hour and a half talk that may unravel some of that maddening mysterious marvelous book
0: well thank you so much thank you you've been listening to Christian Curious with Dr. Haley Gray Scott you can find us on our website at www.christiancurious.com that's www.christiancurious.com stay curious